Welcome to The Clear Cut. Hi, I'm Janet Sumner, Executive Director at Wildlands League. And I'm Kaya Adelman, Carbon Manager at Wildlands League. Wildlands League is a Canadian conservation organization working on protecting the natural world. I think to really get the full picture of forestry in Canada, we need some context. Right, some background information. We all know that Canada has a lot of forest. According to Natural Resources Canada, we manage 232 million hectares of it. Forests are harvested and managed here every day using Enercan forest area harvest data from 2010 to 2020 about 758,615 hectares of forest are harvested every year. But those are just numbers, data. We want to understand how forestry works. How did forest management start? How did it become what it is today? How are decisions about logging made? And who better to unpack that with than our own senior forest conservation manager, Dave Pierce. Here's what we learned. So thanks, Dave, for agreeing to uh, uh, this uh, be on this podcast. We really appreciate your time and uh, your wisdom. Um, and maybe we'll just start with uh, have, asking you to give a brief introduction to yourself and some of your history. Um, and feel free to go as far back as you like and tell us a little bit about uh, Dave Pierce. Thanks. Thanks, Janet. Uh, thanks, Kaya. Thanks for being on this podcast. It's my first like professional bo- podcast, so I'm pretty excited. So I'm uh, I'm Senior Forest Conservation Manager with Wildlands League, and I've been with Wildlands League for, oh my goodness, 20, uh, 20 years, uh, coming out of 20 years. Um, and I started off as a forest conservation analyst. Um, my background, I grew up in the Ottawa Valley at a small, uh, tourist resort, hunting, fishing, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of canoeing. That's where I got my love for nature. And, um, I started learning more about forestry as I got older and, and was interested in forest management. And so did a master's of forest conservation at uh, university of Toronto and, uh, I have very mixed feelings about forestry, which will come out. Uh, commercial forestry rate right now and I think there there's a place for forest management and uh, what I've seen uh, over the years is is that the uh, the statements about forest management being sustainable are, are overrated but uh, got, that got me interested in forestry and I, I did masters in forest conservation and and I'm not a registered professional forester but I have a lot of interest in forestry and uh, worked in a private woodlot uh, trying to do uber sustainable forestry, uber sensitive forestry, uh, for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, worked for Ministry of Natural Resources, uh, for a couple of years on regeneration and civil cultural treatment, uh, reporting, and then got on with Wildlands League. And, uh, and my role is really to try to increase the conservation aspect of, um, forestry, working with companies and first nations and, uh, and advocating for more protection of, of, uh, uh, ecological and uh, species values on the landscape, particular, particularly caribou. Thanks, Dave. Uh, I think this is a, for me anyway, it's a little bit of a rare opportunity. We don't get a chance to sit down and just ask what you think. But maybe you can 
just start to unpack a little bit. For the general public, they don't necessarily understand what the thinking is under underneath forestry. So you're asking me to, to think like a forester a little bit here. <laughs> but I a, am. With my uh, uh, conservation lens on as well. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So in Ontario, most forest management occurs on public land or what's called crown land or unceded territory. Um, land that, that uh, hasn't hasn't been uh, bought by any particular company. It's, it's you know, the government manages it um, ostensibly on behalf of the, the public. So it's public land. And mill licenses were given out, you know, around 100 years ago in places like Capascasing and Iroquois Falls and um, Dryden, Thunder Bay. And forestry, you know, scientific forestry was still in its infancy, but they looked at the forest and said, you know what, they sent out timber cruisers, they think there's this much on there, and we're going to basically harvest enough to feed the mills. And they built these huge mills without really understanding what they could sustain. And the battle has been ever since to try to sustain these these wood flows, which were in most cases inflated. They didn't they didn't know that the forest you know how the forest was going to grow back. They didn't really know how much timber they had. They assumed they could harvest to a certain limit, and they and uh, uh, Ontario's had a, a limit of commercial forestry in the north for a long time. This is interesting. Forestry started when it looked like there were trees and forests as far as the eye could see. There was a demand for timber met by a need to carve out a living and logging begins. So we started building processing plants, the mills, and over the years, improvements and mechanization, an increase in production, maximization of the cubic meters of lumber going through a mill as fast as we could. But of course, the party didn't last forever. The number of trees are not indeed limitless. It doesn't go on forever. So they had to change the approach. Dave goes on to explain that change, the sustained yield model, which developed on the premise that forest managers over the decades came to the realization, oh, there might be not as much wood out there as we thought. It doesn't grow back as fast. Um, Maybe we're cutting a bit too much. And there's been somewhat of an attempt to, to pull back on how much we've harvested. And as new knowledge has come in to forestry and the sustained yield concept got hold. And that's a mathematical sort of idealized forest that if you if you cut over time, say you have 100 hectares of forest and you cut one hectare per year for 100 years, by the time you get back to the first hectare that you've cut, it's supposed to have grown back and you've done the tree planting, you've you know done all the silviculture. And what that does is it converts a forest into more uh, an agricultural model, right? And, and those, those 100 hectares become sort of 100 fields. You plant your crop, you harvest them, you come back after 100 years. That's roughly the concept of what was called sustained yield over time. And then we found out that didn't happen. So, so in many cases, uh, the forest has shifted uh, because we didn't regrow the forest that was there originally. We, there was a lot of high grading where they take out the, the most valuable stuff. And when they came back and, and they've done sort of retroactive historical surveys to show this, originally the forest was the boreal forest, which is kind of the northern forest dominated by mostly conifer with pockets of poplar and birch what they call hardwoods, interspersed in kind of a matrix. And what we've found after the first pass of forestry had gone by, 
it didn't come back that way. It came back into a what they call a mixed wood situation where the yeah some spruce, pine, fir came back, but it was really mixed with the the hardwoods because the hardwoods uh, came in after the disturbance of forestry. So we found that the forest wasn't coming back the same way. So you didn't have this high volume of very valuable forest products, which the conifers are, because that's where we get most of our lumber. And and there's been an attempt to sort of put that genie back in the bottle ever since. And trying to meet the demands of this mill and communities that built up around that demand and realizing too late, I think, and, and many people don't even realize it, even at government level, that we can't sustain those mills at the same volume and preserve the other, other values on the landscape. So as Dave explains, it seems like the new sustained yield model didn't really work either, because even though they were now rotating harvests on a cycle, anywhere from 60 to 120 years, the forest still wasn't growing back the types of trees that were the most valuable to the mills. So they had to reshift the thinking again. That's right. I find that particularly interesting because some officials have recently stated to me that they believe sustained yield is what is happening in the real world. That if you cut a tree, replant it, that the forest comes back fully. That, you know, it's just magic. That we can literally regrow what we cut. But that's not what happens. In fact, we've moved on from sustained yield. And Dave went on to further describe what they moved on to after, in a way that accounts for other important values of the forest. Many uh, organizations and levels of government and foresters recognize that that doesn't account for species. You know, that, that might produce fiber, but it doesn't account for all the other valleys in the forest. So what they've attempted to do is move to something called sustainable forest management. They thought, okay, we're going to take a a sort of a species-by-species approach. And one of the high-value species on the landscape um, is moose for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, uh, indigenous people hunt them, um, settler populations hunt them, you know, for food, for sport. People love to see moose along the highway. I mean, they're just very iconic. And uh, even moose were having trouble. And so they said, well, what do moose need? They need... Um, they need some conifer to hide in from uh, for shade in the summertime because moose get ho- overheated in the summer. Um, and then in severe winters, even, you know, if you get two meters of snow or, you know, more, it's even hard for moose to move around. So they go into the conifers in the wintertime so they can move around easy. But they also need, they don't eat conifer by and large. They eat uh, the deciduous stuff. So you need deciduous browse close by. And they said, well, let's just, cut up the landscape so you have conifer and then a new clear cut which has deciduous and the moose can come out and eat the deciduous and then you have conifer and it was like a checkerboard pattern and then uh, we started calling them or somebody started calling them moose motels because it was all designed around moose very very folk, focal uh, species focused thing so and that went on in mostly in the 80s i guess late 70s 80s I love that. Moose motels. It's such a cute name. It is. And they look cool, too. If you see them laid out on a map, it looks like a great big checkerboard. It's crazy, though, that the way they went about it was to just pick species to base this whole new sustainable forest management concept on. But it didn't stay that way, as Dave went on to explain. And in the 90s, um, groups and individuals and, you know, government biologists got concerned about caribou and they're saying well caribou 
don't do well here because the moose population goes up and then the wolf population goes up and the wolves, you know, they do eat moose, but caribou are like a side snack that have no defense against wolves. They don't run fast enough. They don't reproduce fast enough and they can't fight off a wolf. So moose can reproduce fairly quickly and wolves are only successful like one in 10 times when they chase a a moose because usually they get fought off. But caribou are like no problem for a wolf. And so the caribou populations were taking a dive. Saying, well, how are we going to fix that, Kate? And this is where a sort of natural disturbance pattern emulation came in because caribou can coexist with fire. And they said, well, instead of having these moose motels, let's, let's act more like a fire and we'll we'll cut big areas because the average fire burned in northwestern Ontario at that time this is where they're focusing was burnt about 10,000 hectares so let's create 10,000 hectare clear cuts just like a firewood and we'll move those move those around the landscape like a firewood you know kind of arbitrarily like a firewood bounce around the landscape and so we'll we'll keep caribou on the landscape and the, and they even had uh, government group had t-shirts, I think, made up that said, think like a caribou, act like a fire. And that was, they called that the the mosaic for caribou, these large 10,000 hectare clear cuts around around the, the landscape and, and they uh, would get rid of the moose motels uh, in, in caribou range. And that's, that's where it started. And then with sort of refinement, they've now, um, they now call it the dynamic caribou habitat simulation model um, where again they, they create these large large disturbances move them around the landscape in attempt to um, to emulate fire the trouble is it doesn't work and, and <laughs> we can talk about that that seems i mean the rationale makes sense to me because it's like oh if this area is going to burn anyway why don't we draw some sort of economic value out of it for forestry companies before it burns um but i don't know in actual in actuality that doesn't seem to make sense because like the like clear cutting forests and releasing all of that stored carbon into the air um would just accelerate climate change make areas hotter make more fires happen and worse fires happen and also logging i don't know doesn't seem to emulate fire like i don't know i don't see how those are interchangeable logging and fire yeah we, we could talk about that for a minute because um and wildlands league produced in the 90s uh late 90s and early 2000s produced a series of fact sheets about the differences between logging and, and fire i mean obvious one of there's a few main ones fire doesn't create roads which are effectively permanent on the landscape because they don't they don't regenerate before the, the next rotation comes through and wildlands league has done work to to uh, to verify that and fire doesn't take all these stems off the landscape and truck them away and logging is you know overall it's a physical process where uh, fire is a chemical process right and and because of that there's there's a lot of um, things that a fire does that that logging can't do such as um, killing off some of the the competition to conifer uh, naturally and in a, in a way that's that's naturally selective as opposed to spraying herbicide afterwards which is kind of willy-nilly and, and a heavy hammer and there's lots of you know add-on negative effects to it um, and then the, the the quality of the structure that's left 
is is very um, it's human selected. Uh, it's not naturally selected. So the standing trees that are left, um, you know, aren't the same ones that would be left standing if a fire went through. You know, the the species of trees that survive a fire might not be the same ones that that uh, logging, you know, would leave behind. So. Yeah, there's a, a lot of differences between fire and, and logging that we haven't um, we haven't figured out how to how to really emulate fire on the landscape. But the main one is the roads and the, the permanent impact of these roads uh, remaining on the landscape. Dave, I liked what you were saying, and maybe I'll just rephrase it back to you. But this idea that forestry is out there taking the genetic winners and the preferred species. And fire, and this is just my understanding, tends to leave the stronger trees or the genetic winners standing. And, and so it's, it's, it's like a reverse of the process. What happens if we suppress fire? So if you, when we suppress fire, um, again, I'm not an expert on any of these things. I, you know, I'm kind of a fairly well-informed layperson uh, on this, but um uh, my understanding is when we suppress fire, we can only do it for so long. And eventually, um, f- trees fall over because they die of old age. Uh, you get a lot of uh, dry stems, um, logs, basically, slash, piling up. And that creates such a huge fuel load that you get a, a particularly dry summer. There's no way you can stop put that fire out. Like once it gets going, it's just going to keep going. And then we get like big more catastrophic fires, which are becoming more and more common, partly because of fire, climate change, but also because we've suppressed, attempted to suppress fires over the last hundred years to, you know, harvest them for for fiber instead of letting forests burn. So you get increased fuel loads, um, increased heat, uh, and then it, it burns and kills everything and might even, you know, uh, result in uh, forest being replaced by grassland because you basically killed all the seed source and the fire is so hot it kills all those underground, the root systems and the stumps and everything uh, from the deciduous trees. The other thing, by removing uh, the natural pattern, if you remember, um, um, this is some of the good work that governments have done. They've established through historical records that the natural pattern was pure conifer overall with sort of islands and hedgerows of pure deciduous um, in between. And those pure deciduous stands kind of acted like a fire break. And so you didn't kind of limited the size of the fires because they'd hit these pure poplar stands. And you can imagine uh, burning a dry bunch of uh, uh, Christmas tree needles as opposed to a, a, um, a head of lettuce, you know, which is going to burn uh, more. You know, the, the deciduous is kind of like the head of lettuce. It's not going to catch fire. You know, it's kind of succulent. Uh, it's not going to catch fire as easily. Um, and they provided uh, fire breaks. But with mixing these species through forest management, you don't have these effective fire breaks because there's always a, a path to go around, you know, a little small blob of, of deciduous through the conifer, you know, that has grown back. Um, so you've kind of removed these natural fire breaks. So that's, that's one of the, uh, the impacts of forest management. Interesting. So it seems like the strategy is kind of like a catch-22. This uh, this mimicking fire strategy. Right. And a catch-22 in the sense that we're trying to um, 
save fiber from being consumed by fire, but at the same time, we're exacerbating the conditions for fire on the landscape through climate change and changing the composition of the forest. So according to Dave, where we stand now with forestry is planning with an appreciation of other values on the landscape, species like caribou, for example, but also this desire to emulate natural processes of the forest, like fire. It seems like an attempt to reconcile the natural state of the forest with our own human-caused anthropogenic activities like logging and forest management. Right. But like he said, there are issues with what we're currently doing as well. While it might be better than the original Wild West approach of let's take what we can, or even the sustained yield, let's harvest every 100 years model, trying to treat logging like a fire can carry serious consequences for the state of our forests. So Dave, I just want to ask a very direct question. Is forestry sustainable? Yes. Uh, well, sustainability is a, it's a spectrum, right? I, that's the way I look at well, it. Give, give, us, give us your best shot. Like, uh, under what conditions? Um, yeah, I'd have to say it's, it's not as sustainable as it purports to be, and it's not sustainable under the current, um, I guess, the current footprint of forestry uh, makes it unsustainable in the current um literally in the current climate um because we have we're in both a biodiversity and a climate crisis and i think we need to take some radical action um would you say that because most forestry happens on crown land that canada is kind of in a unique position to be more proactive in its approach to making forestry truly more sustainable yeah, that's a that's a great point because I, I guess we are unique in the in the amount of of um, public land, and this is where most of the the, the forestry happens. Um, it's about ninety percent in Ontario, ninety percent across Canada, probably that forestry happens on public land and and ten percent on private land, and then in in the U.S. I think that's flipped, um, and it's mostly happens on private land, and there's a small area. So yeah, so so the public should have. Uh, a greater say in how forestry happens. And we actually published a manual uh, back when I, close to when I started with Wildlands League in 2004, 2005 on um, citizen, Citizen's Guide to Forest Management and how to engage forest management activities. Now it's, it's, that's out of date. And our voice as citizens has been stripped back steadily by, um, well, particularly under the latest progressive conservative government in Ontario. Um, so that uh, we have less of an opportunity to, um, for example, full demand a full environmental assessment on a, on a forest. Um, most forest management activities under, uh, occur under a um, sort of a high level class environmental assessment that kind of said, well, this, you know, these are the, the ways you can tweak this so that it meets environmental standards in general forestry so forestry is kind of okay we don't need to do individual environmental assessments but we we were able to uh, contest that and say okay for this particular forest we want an individual environmental assessment but even that that option has been taken off the table so we do have a potential to raise our voices 
Um, but that that is becoming more and more muted over time, and 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 so um, it might be time to rally the the uh, the citizen uh, citizen guide to re- resurrect that and get more citizens involved in in uh, in forestry planning. That was a very insightful chat we had with Dave about the evolution of forest management in Canada and its present state. What did you think, Kaya? Yeah, it was really interesting, and I learned a lot, and I feel like I now have a very good foundation for my understanding of forestry in Canada. It provided a lot of good context regarding what decisions are being made and how that impacts forests and sustainability today. It seems like progress has been made from the days of pillage and plunder, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. What are your thoughts, Janet? I found it particularly interesting that our thinking has evolved, becoming more complex. We're looking at multiple values in forests. That being said, we never went back to the first principles and asked ourselves the question, can forestry ever truly coexist with nature and not have a fundamentally altering presence on the landscape? At the heart of this is the question, is logging sustainable, or can it be? Dave concludes that right now, how forestry is currently practiced is not sustainable given we have a climate-changed world and a biodiversity crisis where many species are clinging on to their existence. And not only do we need to leave our forests intact and standing to continue to absorb and store carbon, but we need them to provide habitat for these threatened species like the iconic boreal caribou. Just recently, the federal minister determined that once again, Ontario was not effectively protecting habitat for boreal caribou and made a recommendation to cabinet. But instead of taking action under the Species at Risk Act, the federal cabinet blinked and gave Ontario another year. This delay will enable thousands more of the hectares of intact caribou habitat to be logged on top of the forest that burns. It's frankly unconscionable. Ontario has had more than 10 years to come up with habitat protections, and they've failed. Um, You can't really do that. Ontario wants to double logging, burn more for biomass, and hand over lands to the mining sector for critical minerals. We're a long way from sustainability, in fact. And I'm worried we're exhausting our forests, and future generations are going to look back and think, what the heck were they thinking? Yeah, I'm thinking that right now a little bit. Uh, But this is all kind of in line with what Dave was talking about, with current sustainable forest management ideas just not being good enough to protect important values in the forest. Species like caribou, values that are not just timber. We definitely need to keep pushing for governments to take action, not just to have regulations, but to actually take action that backs those up, to protect and preserve those values that are in the forest. If you like this episode of The Clear Cut, Conversations on Forestry, stay tuned for new episodes. Updates about the podcast and our other work at Wildlands League can be found on social media. That's at Wildlands League on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.